If you have your Bibles with you, would you open to the book of Genesis, chapter 37, which if you're using a Bible on the seats, I think it's page 27 or around about there. And we're going to be spending the next several weeks talking about uh, the vocation of God in our everyday life. And I thought we'd like to start with this question or this situation. Have you ever... <clears throat> been in a um, in an environment like in the hospital, where you you find yourself between the question of is it God who healed me or was it the doctor who healed me? Did God heal me or did the doctor heal me? Maybe you've maybe at least you felt the tension of that sort of thought. Which, by the way, the tension only exists in that question because it's an either-or question. I mean, if we accept that the Lord used the doctor to heal us, then the tension goes away. I mean, just as we accept that the doctor has an instrument in his hand that he uses to heal us, can't we accept that the doctor is the instrument in God's hand to heal us? Same is true with the question of, did God, when I give thanks at my dinner table, is it because God gave this food for me, or did the farmer give this food for me? God provides food through the farmer. Just as the farmer uses implements to sow and care and reap, why can't the farmer be the implement of God to care for me? How about this? Have you ever found yourself uh, that you've prayed for something that's really, you know, you have a need or a cause that you've gone to the Lord and you've said a prayer and you find that that prayer is being answered, but it's being answered through somebody else. So somebody is answering your prayer to the Lord. Or maybe you found it the other way around, like you were the answer to someone else's prayer in a way that you were the instrument that God was using to bring his love and provision to somebody else. I think on the whole, there are some rare occasions where the Lord may make himself undeniably plain to us, where the Lord uh, kind of cuts out the middleman and shows himself where God uh, chooses to no longer, not to hide behind the mask of another person, but to come out. I think there are those occasions. I think they're rare. And I think on the whole, most often, God works through others. We're his instruments. Now, like I said, this series is about calling, or uh, the fancier word for calling is vocation. And these words uh, have garnered about themselves a little bit of an elusive meaning in today. For one, calling can have multiple meanings. So in the Bible, calling can be used to describe our salvation. We've been called to be God's people. It can describe sort of the sovereign 
act of God in our lives. We come by His calling. It can be used to describe uh, an encounter with the Lord, right? The Lord called out to Samuel. The Lord called out to Moses from the bush. There's these moments where the Lord quite literally calls and someone hears. And it can also be used to describe uh, living in His will. So we've been called to do certain things. We're supposed to live up to the calling that we've received. So there's this, this uh, wide array of word, meanings that the word can have, but that's not only what makes the word elusive. Vocation, which is a slightly more narrow use of the word calling, is a little less elusive. Generally, when people talk about vocation, they're talking about a role or a job or a profession that someone has felt called into. They're doing it not for um, money, uh, but not for maybe some of the normal reasons somebody does something. They're doing it because they feel called into it. We sometimes call that a vocation. And so we don't use the word vocation for very many things, typically. It's a careful word. So we'll use vocation to describe uh, a person who literally felt called by the Lord. So if a minister, if someone will say to a minister, when did you get your call? That's a a common question. How did your call come? How do you know that you're called? Okay, that's a way where we might say he's vocationally a minister. Uh, When somebody makes a habit or life of laboring towards a higher purpose, we tend to assign the word vocation there, so, or calling. So, a soldier who uh, is, you know, putting his life, sacrificing his life so that others, we might say he's answered the call. Sometimes you can tell a person is so particularly made that they're supposed to do a certain thing. And you'll say, wow, she really is, she has found her calling. It's, we say those things, you see kind of the narrowness of that, of all those thoughts? Of, uh, even though they're different, they're narrow. That this person's made in a particular way to do a particular thing, and it's, it's in finding that way, she's really found her calling. I have this very simple diagram up for you here. Uh, it's hard to get more simple than this. I, I you know, so this is not like uh, some Harvard study. Okay, this is just kind of a hunch that these words sort of from left to right are, sit on a spectrum. A spectrum of, we might say, of, on the left side would be a uh, sense of, of purpose, a sense of um, higher calling. All of these things are really low, and as you move to the right, they really start to go up. So someone might have a job, and when I say job in this particular case, I'm saying... Um, it pays the bills, it puts food on the table. So you could go You could go to Main Street, you could visit with somebody who's working at Chipotle, and you'd say, oh, you work at Chipotle. 
And she might say, wait, 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 wait. <laughs> like, that's, that's just my job. Like, that's not what I'm really doing. I'm really a student at UD, and I'm working to become a physical therapist. So, you hear that? When someone talks that way, they're saying, I in no way want to be associated with that labor. Like, I am not that. I'm doing that. It's a necessary evil in my life. I have bills to pay. Job, okay? And then you get to occupation. That's something, the sort of thing that if you've been an adult for a while and you've done the same thing for a long time, you start to say, well, yeah, that's what I do. You start to, you are a plumber. You are a computer engineer, okay? Then we have things like professions, which when we talk about someone who's a professional, what we begin to acknowledge is they have already, in order to do what they're doing, they've invested a lot of themselves into it before we could have taken anything out of it. That's what makes a professional. As we recognize, they've had their sights on this for a long time because not just anybody can do this. Okay? And then we start to get to the land of vocation. Vocation is, I suppose, could be, it doesn't need to be professional, but it certainly needs to be purposeful or meaningful. Like, they're doing it, they're not doing it for the money, they're not even doing it because of a dream, they're doing it in the, in the sense of when I grow up I want to be, they're doing it in the sense of, I think this is what I was made for. Or what I'm supposed to do. It's full of purpose. Now, I'm not saying that's what vocation is. I'm saying I think that's how we view vocation today. How we view it in our culture. In fact, I'm going to push on this uh, a little bit this morning. But I think that that is kind of how, how it looks. And when it looks this way, vocation is a narrow idea. It's sort of a narrow and somewhat elite idea. In other words, if we accept that that's what vocation is, then it has implications on those other words. Like if you go way over regular jobs and regular occupations, are maybe they don't have purpose. Maybe we shouldn't assume that they're purposeful. I mean, these are the implications that start to come out when you say, well, vocation means you're purposefully and meaningfully following the Lord and what you're supposed to do. I mean, let's just say that, right? If that's the case, then what about for everyone else who just has a job? What? Where's the meaning for them? We begin to think wrong thoughts like, what I'm doing is not that meaningful because I don't really feel called to do it. I'm in my job, I'm doing this job, but what I really think I'm called to do is that. So when I get there, it'll be full of meaning, but right now, this is just my job. You see, there's, there's implications to this thought. Or I'm somehow less spiritual than those who have answered a call or for those who are in vocational work because their vocational work is spiritual and my work is of the natural world. These are the sorts of, I think, wrong thoughts that I, I want to sort of approach today in the Word. This, this basic wrong thought that the call is what spiritualizes the labor. Okay? That the call is what spiritualizes the labor. I want to test that. 
So if you, I should hope by this point you're in Genesis 37. Um, if you're not, there's a table of contents. Because, <laughs> yeah, it's a lot of pages here. If you haven't found it by now, you need a table of contents. Bad joke. Um, you're in Genesis 37. And uh, we're in the story of Joseph. And the story of Joseph occupies about a third of the book of Genesis. So it's a big story, and it's a story that comes out of the story of Jacob, which occupies half of the book of Genesis. So we're in a big story that's spinning out of or being birthed out of a a larger story. So we can't talk about everything, but we're going to talk about Joseph, who is the young son of Jacob, whose name is also Israel. That's what you'll, you'll hear him called Israel in this account. He's his young son, and Joseph is his favorite son. And there's reasons for that that go beyond even what you'll see here. But uh, let me go ahead and read. I'm going to read verses 3 through 11, and we'll begin to think about uh, calling again. Joseph's about 17 right now. It says in verse 3, Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Hear this dream that I've dreamed. Behold, we were binding the sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright, and behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, Are you indeed going to reign over us? Or are you indeed going to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and even eleven, and eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I And your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him. But his father kept the saying in mind. Now, these dreams that Joseph has, I would not say this is the same as calling. These are pretty prophetic dreams. So I'm not saying it's exactly the same as calling. But I will say, the traditional view of calling, but I will say it is reminiscent of the kind of way that people sometimes wish they could be called by the Lord. If I just knew what the Lord had for me, wanted to do with me, where he wanted me to go, if I could just know where he was taking me, then I could have purpose and meaning in my life, okay? Now, I think that's, that there's something here. Is just Joseph gets a forecast of his future in a way that many people who long to be called wish they could get. If I just knew what God wanted me to do, then I'd be useful to the Lord. The way that the called 
are the people who are vocational in our minds, the way they're singled out by God and they're spoken or shown something to follow. This extra sense of purpose that people who are called by God get that many of us don't get. I mean, you think of all of his, his 11 other brothers. They're just shepherds. He's called. They're shepherds. They're just shepherds. I mean, what's the point? What's the role of shepherding? I don't know. You shepherd. You wake up and you shepherd. And then you wake up tomorrow and it's time to shepherd again. And you do that until you die. That's what shepherds do. Joseph. Well, God's talking to Joseph. Now, something happens uh, to Joseph. I don't know if you picked up in the text that his brothers came to hate him. It's pretty obvious in the text. Um, so they come to hate him, and at one point, there's, uh, I mean, we're going to skip a lot. Uh, at one point, his father says to Joseph, hey, go out and check on your brothers. I find it interesting. His brothers are out shepherding everybody but Joseph. Okay? So Jacob says to Joseph, go out and check on your brothers. Joseph goes out, and he's checking on his brothers, and when they see him coming, one of them says, I have an idea, let's kill him. And everybody goes, yeah. And then somebody says, maybe let's not kill him, maybe let's just throw him in a hole and let him die there. And they go, yeah. And then somebody says, well, that seems unduly cruel. How about we sell him into slavery? And they all go, yeah. And that's what they do. They sell him into slavery. Verse 28 of uh, chapter 37 says, the Midianite traders passed by and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. Now, I just want you to imagine, I want you to put yourself in Joseph's shoes for a second. You had these big, fancy dreams of how God was going to use you, okay? Let's just imagine, instead of these, you know, just make the dreams a little bit more vocational for you. You know what God wants you to be when you grow up. You know where you're going. You have a sense of direction from the Lord. All of that, right? All this meaning, all this purpose tied up in this vocation. Let's just imagine that's you and you have these shoes on. How do you think you feel now? With your hands tied by a rope and you're walking behind the camel for the next 600 miles to get to Egypt. Like, how's your soul doing? If your sense of purpose and meaning was caught up in what God was going to do for you, what's your sense of purpose and meaning when what you were going to do is never, ever going to happen, ever? I mean, I cannot... Those of you who know the whole story know it works out well for him. But I cannot imagine at 17 he's thinking, oh, this is just, this is God's long and winding road. I don't think that and you don't think that. Like when things like this happen, it's woe is me. He is being taken to a distant land to be a slave. Of what value were all those dreams now? All right, well, we'll pick up in 39. We're going to skip 38. Um, there's a, kind of a literary device in Hebrew that shows up a couple times, which is 
when they want you to feel a break in time, they'll insert another story like a commercial break. So right now, Joseph is being hauled off to Egypt. So we need another story for us to feel like. You, you should imagine, I do think a lot of the Old Testament was written almost with thinking that you're sitting around the fire and kids are listening. So Joseph's going off to Egypt. And then you imagine like your uncle starting to tell another story and the kids being like, well, what's happening in Joseph? What's happening in Joseph? And the uncle's like, well, hold on, man. It takes a while to get to Egypt. We'll get back to it. So chapter 38 is a break to make you feel the distance. And then chapter 39 comes right back and Joseph has arrived in Egypt. Let me read uh, six verses. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt. And Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had brought him, had bought him from the Ishmaelites and brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man. And he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in, the, in his sight and attended him, and he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer of his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge, and because of him he had no concerns about anything but the food he ate. Stop there. What kind of slave is Joseph? Good slave, bad slave? He's like a great slave. He's not bemoaning the injustice of his unripe, this unrighteous swindling of his brothers. It's none of that. He's a great slave. And I think he's a great, it says that the Lord blessed him, but it also, as we read the story and as we see it, as you can imagine, Joseph is making it possible for the Lord to bless him. Joseph is a good slave and the Lord is blessing the things that Joseph does. It says the Lord was with Joseph in verse two. In verse three it says, and the master Potiphar saw that the Lord was with Joseph. In other words, in the midst of Joseph's labor, Potiphar is seeing the God of Joseph. Joseph is a means of God. He's an instrument of God, and he's being seen by the master of the house. Now we need to remind ourselves, Joseph is a million miles from the dream God gave him. He's a million miles away. Is he living as though he's a million miles away from purpose? Is he living as though he's a million miles away from God's intention? Is he living as though this is just a job? Listen, this is not what I was intended to be. This is just a job. This is, and historically, okay, when you look at Roman texts of slavery in Rome, when you even read the scriptures about God's teaching to slaves, those are in office, what you find is they were not customarily motivated workers. Why? What's the value of being a motivated slave? He's uncharacteristically dutiful. And if we were going to put, remember that spectrum, job, occupation, profession, 
vocation, where would you put slave? Like, I think you need another category. Like, you thought job was bad, try slave. So he's in a, he's in a line of work, if, we're gonna, if we could even say that about slavery. He's in a line of work that's even right, farther away than you can possibly get from meaning. You're compulsory in your labor. And yet Joseph, works in a God-pleasing way. We might say this way. He's, he works as though his job is spiritual. We might say it's not the call that spiritualizes. It's the person that spiritualizes the job. Sometimes we think, this is what I do, but eh, if God, I feel called to do that. And we think this is natural, that is spiritual. Joseph is saying, it's not the call that spiritualizes. It's my, it's my approach to what I'm doing that spiritualizes it. Watch, watch his attitude. Okay, I want to read uh, a few more verses here. I'm going to pick up in the second half of 6, so like 6b. Just watch it. I want you to see his attitude on the job. Now, Joseph was handsome in form and appearance, and after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes upon Joseph and said, Lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house. And he's put everything he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I, nor has he kept anything from me except you because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her to lie beside her or to be with her. Now, that gives you a sense of what is, when we say the Lord's with Joseph and he's blessing what he's doing, you're getting a sense of how, the Lord's with Joseph because of how Joseph is being. This is not... Don't, doesn't it appear here like Joseph has a sense that God of God's awareness and where he is and of God's will and where he is and of God's purpose and where he is? He says, listen, listen, I've labored hard to establish trust between the, my master and myself. This was given to me. This, this esteem of trust that's come is given to me by the Lord and I could never, never violate. This would be wicked against Potiphar and the Lord. It's clear his role is not purposeless. It's clear he's not just doing this job until his real purpose shows up. And for this, he gets thrown in prison, actually. What happens is Potiphar's wife uh, she claims he tried to rape her. And uh, she's unhappy with the fact that he won't bend to her will, so she, she claims rape. And let me pick it up here in a second. Verse 19. As soon as his master heard the words of his wife, his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me. His anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him in the prison 
the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it to succeed. Now, remember job, occupation, profession, calling, and we said, wow, we got to add a category for slave. I think you add another category. Imprisoned slave. It's... I think apart from death, it's the worst place to be. Like in our experience, I'm just saying our natural experience of trying to follow God, can you imagine as you try to walk in his shoes, your life going backwards so drastically from where you thought you were supposed to go with the Lord, and yet does he act as though he's been purposelessly abandoned by God into the meaningless existence of an interned slave? Is that how he's acting? No. His life is, the jail sees the God of Joseph through the labor of Joseph. That's what we see here. We see it's not a vocation that spiritualizes the job. It's the person that spiritualizes the job. We see Joseph The truth is, for Joseph, his role with the Lord remains constant no matter what office or station or role he finds himself in. The Lord was with him and the jailer saw it. It's like everyone knows that the Lord is with Joseph. And I don't get the sense from the text that it's because Joseph at lunchtime had Bible studies or that he shared the gospel with everyone he met. I get the sense, I just get the sense from the text that it's coming from the manner of his labor and how God with him blesses it. Things like his integrity, his hard work, his wisdom, the fruits of the Spirit, all of those things happen and it meets the favor of God. I just wonder, do we in our own workplaces, particularly if you occupy, all you have is a job, right? I'm going to pick the places where I'm, or I don't like where I am. Where I am is not where I'm supposed to be. I just just want, want you to appreciate, do you operate and live and act as though you believe that your godliness will be met with the favor of God? Now, you might say about Joseph, favor of God, he was sold as a slave and then wrongfully imprisoned. Where's the favor of God? So it's, it's not in like the broad sort of cosmic circumstances. It's in the moment of, do you believe that if you behave in a God-glorifying way in your job, you spiritualize your work and God honors it? Do you believe that your job is not a secular reality? But that the moment you meet your job, it's spiritual. And that people see God through you. Can you really say, you know, I'm just a slave, this is just my job, 
this is just what I do for the money. One day, you know, God is going to let me do something that's real and meaningful and purposeful. Let me hit a pause on the text of Scripture for a second. A little bit of history. At the time of the Reformation, Martin Luther, uh, he was alarmed by what he saw was happening with the concept of calling. What he observed was you had this priestly class in the village or the town, the priestly class, and they were vocational ministers and they would dispense the holy things of God to the village, which were really just people of the natural secular world. So the natural world would regularly gather at the, at the cathedral and receive from the spiritual laborers some fruits. Here's some spiritual fruit, and then they would go back into their natural order. That's what he saw at the time of the Reformation was this, the professionalization of the spiritual life which is if you just are a blacksmith, well, that's what you are. You're a blacksmith, and then you go to church on Sunday, and you do confession, or you receive the Lord's Supper, or, or the Mass, or whatever, whatever it is, right? But you're a blacksmith that occasionally comes out of your overwhelmingly secular life and dips into the spiritual, and thank God that you have these spiritually professionals to sort of pour into you and then you go back into your secular world. And Martin Luther saw that and he just saw the, all of the wrongness of that. I mean, how can we recite the Lord is my shepherd without feeling the wrongness of saying, well, the shepherd's just a shepherd, but the priest, he's spiritual. And so Martin Luther begins to turn it on its head, and he does this thing. And I, my goal is not to preach Martin Luther, but I think he's grabbing onto something that's really healthy, and we're going to spend some weeks on, which is rather than viewing vocation as a spiritual destination, like what does God want me to do in life? You know, there's sort of I'm navigating through my life, and I'm telling my story, and in order for me to tell my story in a satisfying way, I need to find out what God intends for me and where he goes. He says, rather than that being the primary question of calling for you, what if the primary question, okay, and he's not negating the fact that God calls and that he works. He's saying, what if instead the primary question you asked about calling was, in the place that I am currently occupying, what is God calling me to do? He said, what if it was a present reality? He said, what if you recognized that you are an instrument in the Redeemer's hands right now. And that God, God wants you to be a willing instrument in his hands. And what if you, what if you realized I and my place, wherever that is, whether you're a student, whether you're unemployed, whether you're a hard worker, whether you're, whether you're a new worker, whether you feel like you've arrived, or whether you're a supervisor, it doesn't matter where. What if you, what if you instead said the primary question of my calling is, how in my labor will the people around me see the Lord? Martin Luther said it this way. He said, we are the mask that the invisible God wears. How may that be possible? At one point, Luther said something like this. I thought it was... It gets to the right place. He was... 
speaking to some young women house servants. And he said to them, if you do your household chores, that is better than all the holiness and austere life of all the monks. Now, it's said in a bold way, it's the principle he's pointing out, which is your work is not secular. And your life is entirely spiritual. In your life, because you're not in vocation, vocational ministry, your life is not in any way less spiritual than the life of the bishop. That's what he's saying. He's saying your life is as spiritual as the apostle's life. So how does God want to participate with you in it? I want to share a story with you before I close. So this past Sunday, my wife and I left after church and we went down to St. Michael's. We'd never been to St. Michael's before. And my neighbor, they're a little older, he's been telling me, you gotta go to St. Michael's, you gotta go to St. Michael's. We got it. So we went to St. Michael's. Went there, spent the night, came back Monday. And it was great. St. Michael's is a nice place. So we're there and we go to the Maritime Museum that they have there. And we're walking through the Maritime Museum, learning about things, learning about, and then they have this display about the crabbing industry in the Chesapeake. The blue crab, Chesapeake blue crab, and the industry there. And so we're reading a little bit about this, the history of this industry. And then they have this display set up, which sort of the conveyor belt of the canning, the, the big houses, the canning houses, where all the crabs were processed. And I thought, you know, on this spectrum of like, Imprisoned slave, slave, job, occupation, profession, calling. Canning crab is the worst. Like I'd rather be an imprisoned slave. I would break the law to get thrown into prison to keep from having to, but especially because I like crab. Can you imagine having to do that and not eat it? That'd be the worst. So I'm, I'm thinking to myself, and I have this, you know, vocation in my, in my brain, and I'm thinking of... Uh, I'm looking at all these pictures just thinking that is the worst job ever just to clean crabs all day long. And they've got paid peanuts. They got paid by the pound of meat, not by how long they worked. So anyway, I'm looking at pictures and pictures and pretty soon I start to notice a trend that surfaces enough in our history, which as I see in these pictures, everybody on the floor of these warehouses is African-American. These pictures from the 50s. Everybody on the floor there is, is African-American, except for the, the foreman. The foreman was white. And, you know, as I'm, I'm reading and I'm looking at these pictures, sort of that, yeah, I'm revisited, and I'm just trying to describe how it feels for me, uh, that, that wave of, like, reality, like the fullness of history, the fullness of our history, once again starts to speak. And I'm just, I'm thinking to myself, not only is this the worst job ever, but for many who were doing this, they're doing this beneath the cloud of some degree of injustice. They're there for a reason, and they're stuck there for a reason. And I'm, you know, I'm like, man, that is hard. And then I come around a panel and I read, I read this. It's a picture for you. <clears throat> her name is Alice Palmer, and I'll read it for you here. This is what she said about her work. She said, why not bring that atmosphere that you had from church into the crab house? 
and make your job easier for you. Singing the song would bring you joy. And see, when the joy come, you don't mind what you have to do. And we knew that we had to work. And this was the work that was here for us to do. And so we had to do it. You see, it's not the calling that makes your job spiritual. It's the person that makes your job spiritual. Praise God for people like Joseph and for like Alice, who redeem all the injustice of their earthly situation by the notion of this is where God has put me, and he's worthy of praise. I bet you the people in her saw the Lord because of her. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for these saints who've gone before us, who remind us uh, through their hard situations, uh, Lord, that we can see how we're supposed to be even in our situations, whether they're good or difficult. Lord, we're reminded of Christ, that Christ is Emmanuel, God with us. So we know that we've not been abandoned, no matter whether we are without work or in a place that we don't want to be or in a relationship we don't want to be, or a role or a station of life or whatever it is, Lord. We know that you have not left us. And I pray that this morning, Lord, for everyone here that they would know you have not left them and that you have a call for them right now. Lord, that your call is not off in the distance waiting for, to be realized someday, but right now you have a way for them to be the mask of the invisible God so that others might see, so that your favor might be shown and people would see you through them. And I pray, Lord, as we study the word with this in mind, you would grow the way that we work. We pray all this, Lord, in the name of Jesus. Amen.